Boker Tov, good morning everyone, shalom, on this uh, sixth day of the week, the preparation day, as we are getting ready to go into the Sabbath, and want to welcome everybody, who, uh, all of you precious, beautiful, wonderful people, who are tuning in from all over the world, just glad to see you this morning, so, we are still on uh, Parasha 4, I mean Aliyah 4, excuse me. Uh, this is part Gimel of the fourth Aliyah, as I've been saying all week. Uh, the fourth Aliyah is just chocked full of uh, wonderful information. I don't. We haven't yet done this where we had uh, the same Aliyah uh, so many days in a row. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, um, we are here. And uh, we're going to continue on, and with God's help, we will uh, try to uh, uh, maybe press through to the end of the parasha, but we'll see. All right, so uh, we are looking now, again, still in the uh, the story of the Pesach, the first Pesach. We are in, going to be, let's see, we're going to start um, in chapter 12 uh, at verse 6. And uh, this is on, in the Art Scroll Chumash. If you have an Art Scroll Chumash, which is what I am using as my main uh, reading source anyway, uh, we are on page 351, page 351. So, <clears throat> we have here, uh, 12 and verse 6, it says, It shall be yours for examination into the 14th day of this month, the entire congregation of the assembly of Israel shall slaughter them in the afternoon. Now, uh, just to draw a quick connection here to uh, the fact that we had to take the lamb and we have to inspect it ourselves and we slaughtered ourselves and all those kinds of things. There's a connection here spiritually anyway to the Messiah. Messiah made his, uh, in the gospel accounts, the Mashiach, Yeshua, made his triumphal entry into Yerushalayim. He came to Yerushalayim in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, riding on a donkey. There's a lot to be said about that, but moving forward. Riding on a donkey, they said to him, Mashiach bin David, uh, waving palm uh, branches. Why are they waving palm branches? Because... Um, a little prophetic thing going on there. Sukkot is really where we have the palm branches. We have the lulavim. And that is indicative of Hashem coming and making His rule and reign on the earth. We also have a prophecy in Joel where it talks about that the teacher of righteousness is going to give us the former reign and the latter reign in the first month, which is Nisan. So it makes sense that uh, Mashiach is going to come into the Jerusalem. He's going to offer up the sacrifice and it's going to be the sacrifice both of Nisan and of uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, Tishrei. This one blank there for a second. Why? Because there are two uh, offerings that are essential to the overall plan of uh, salvation, you might say. First is the lamb. That affects our redemption. It affects, affects our freedom. But there is the Yom Kippur goat. So in the fall festivals, everything revolves around the lamb, but in the, I'm sorry, in the spring festivals, everything revolves around the lamb, and the fall festivals, everything revolves around the goat. But going back to this for a second, Mashiach came into 
uh, Yerushalayim, and then about four days later, he would uh, be arrested and then tried in a night court, which is all against Talacha. You're not supposed to try anybody at night. Uh, all the false witnesses, etc., 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 and then he was uh, crucified. But what did he do after he came to Jerusalem? He spent four days in the temple being what? Questioned. In other words, there's a spiritual picture here where Yeshua is the lamb being examined. And what does it say about him specifically at the end of those gospel accounts where he is being, and the Basara, where he's being, um, where he's being questioned in the temple? What does it say towards the end? It says they could find no fault in him. So they stopped asking him questions. In other words, the four days have expired. We can't find any blemish in him. He's a lamb. He's ready. And he's uh, ready to be offered. That's the spiritual picture. Now, uh, in the uh, article Humash to this uh, verse 6 about examination, it says, Rabbi Masha ben Harash explains why this requirement applied only in Egypt. After all the years of the Egyptian exile, the Jewish people had fallen to such a level that they had no merits that could justify their redemption. God gave them two commandments, both involving blood, the Pesach offering that would be slaughtered and whose blood would be placed on the Jewish doorpost, and the commandment of circumcision, which had been neglected in Mitzrayim, uh, without which males were not permitted to eat of the Pesach, from 12, uh, chapter 12 and verse 48. So the Pesach Haggadah cites this verse from Ezekiel 16.6, In your blood live, in your blood live, which suggests that the Jewish people would be redeemed thanks to the commandment involving blood, uh, meaning that the Pesach offering and that of circumcision, since the circumcision had to take place on the 10th to allow three days of healing before the people could eat the Pesach offering on the 14th. So we are redeemed by blood. Why? Because without blood, we have no merit. Now, there's another connection here I want to bring out from the Midrash Rabbah. The Midrash Rabbah, uh, this is Midrash Rabbah uh, uh, Shemot 17.3. And so, there's a statement here about um, the circumcision and the lamb and so on. And, uh, and this is, comes from the insights to the Midrash Rabbah, talking of, about this particular... Uh, let me just read the, the, the part, this part, then we'll talk about the insights. So it says, Why did the Holy One, blessed be He, see fit to protect the Israelites by means of blood? You know, um, by the way, I have heard uh, uh, anti-missionaries... Somebody, somebody sent me a message. I haven't had a chance to respond back to it yet, but somebody, I don't know who they are. I've never met this person before, but... Baruch Hashem, by the way. We've got people emailing us we don't know yet know, so that's great. It's fantastic. Maybe we get to know them. Uh, but anyway, uh, this person said, hey, I know such and such anti-missionary. He wrote a book. Uh, it's led a bunch of people astray, blah, 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 blah. Uh, maybe you should write a counter book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> well, ask me if I was aware of the person and aware of the book. The answer is yes, I'm aware of the individual. I've had the book for probably eight years, maybe seven years. I don't know, whatever. I've had the book for a long time. Uh, one of these days, um, I'll get around to doing something like that. Frankly, it's a little boring, and I hate to say it like that, but because, because and the reason I say that, I guess, it's um, the, the arguments from the anti-missionaries are all based on Christianity, and they, they, they play upon the, they pray, I should say, upon the ignorant. 
And so uh, it's all, uh, you know, if you're a Christian, it's going to throw it's going to throw you for a loop and you don't have this kind of information. So all that to say, I don't mean to get off on a rabbit trail for that, but um, you'll hear sometimes one might hear an anti-missionary say that Judaism doesn't believe in the redemption uh, through blood. Oh, no, we believe in the redemption through uh, Teshuva and Torah observance. Okay. And then you turn to the Midrash Rabbah, right? Which 99% of believers in, the, in, in JC have never heard of the Midrash Rabbah. I have no idea what it is. You turn to the Midrash Rabbah and you see here, why did the Holy One, blessed be He, see fit to bring about the redemption through the means of blood? Is this thing on? Can y'all hear me? Okay. It says, <clears throat> it was in order to recall for them the blood of Avraham's circumcision. So yes, blood is required, and the answer and the question becomes why. What does it mean to recall Abraham's circumcision? Well, it says here, uh, Hashem had found us in a particular spiritual condition. What condition did He find us in? He said that the condition in which He found us was that we were very, very low. We were only one step away from being lost eternally. Why? Because we had become idolaters in Mitzrayim. Which is why every single person who came out of Egypt, whether they were Jewish or non-Jewish, including Moses, every single one had to go through conversion. Every single one. Every single one had to be mikvah. In the uh, before receiving the Torah, every single one had to be mikvah. And we were mikvah uh, nationally by going through the Yom Suf. And then later, we were also mikvah again before we even received the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is why Yeshua went or set about saying, be mikvah and repent, uh, right? For the, the kingdom of God is here. Why did he say that? Because he is the living Torah who came. And in order to receive him, the living Torah, you had to do exactly what everybody did when they came out of Mitzrayim. You had to be mikvah. Every single Jew. A Jew comes and says, why, why don't they be mikvah? I'm Jewish. They say, well, yeah, we were all Jewish when we left Mitzrayim. And yet, we had to be mikvah. Why? Because of the spiritual condition in which God found us. And it says here, he says here, but here's the problem. The promise that Hashem had made in terms of bringing Abraham's children out of slavery and into salvation, right? The Yeshua that Hashem promised Avraham only applied. Please listen to what I'm about to say as I'm extracting this from the Midrash Rabbah. It only applied to Abraham's children. So now we have a problem. Because we have descended so low, and because we're no longer, I'm talking about us in Egypt, we're no longer circumcising our children, we're no longer keeping the mitzvahs, we're no longer considered Abraham's children. So Hashem has a problem, so to speak. So it says here, just to read it verbatim from the Midrash, but the promise applied only to those descendants of Abraham who carried on their forebearer's name in body and spirit, body and spirit, okay? Not one over the other, but both. It says thus, to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the Israelites and help them meet that condition, God gave them two mitzvahs. To slaughter the Pesach lamb 
and to circumcise all males, thereby renewing their ancient covenant with him, reconnected by these mitzvahs to the Abrahamic roots, the Israelites were now eligible to be redeemed. So, uh, and by the way, it goes on to say, so that we could carry out the mission, the task of Avraham, our father, whose mission and task was to draw all man, all mankind to the service of God. So what does this tell us? As we understand things from a Jewish point of view, right? Because that's the only point of view that matters. The only point of view that matters in terms of understanding redemption is a Jewish point of view. Why? Because he's a God of Israel. He's the Mashiach of Israel. It's the scriptures of Israel. All the heroes of the Bible are Jews. So we have to look at this not from a Gentile mentality, not from a Western mentality, not from a Greek mentality, only from a Jewish mentality. That's the only mentality that matters. It's the only one that makes a difference. So we're looking at this and we say, why do we need the blood of the Lamb? And why do we need circumcision? Which, by the way, is, is the blood of circumcision compared to the blood of the lamb is nothing. The blood of circumcision fills up maybe a gauze pad, if that. Whereas the blood of the lamb fills up buckets. So obviously God has done more. The, the circumcision simply represents our commitment to the covenant. And it's those two things that qualify us. As children of Abraham and only children of Abraham in body and spirit are eligible to be redeemed. So, continuing on here, verse uh, 7. They shall take some of the blood and place it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house in which they will eat it. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roast over the fire, and matzah with bitter herbs shall they eat. You shall not eat it partially roasted. Or cooked in water, only roasted on over fire, its head, its legs, and its innards. You shall not leave any of it until morning. Any of it that is left until morning, you shall burn in the fire. Now there is a reference in the Midrash Shabbos, and I, I have to tell you this: I don't have the reference in front of me. Uh, uh, Met and I uh, know it exists, and we were looking last night trying to find it, and we have not yet found it. But there are sixteen volumes of Midrash Shabbos, and we just can't seem to remember. But we're going to find it, Bezerat Hashem. But there is a Midrash that says that the blood, that the hyssop was dipped in and placed upon the lentils of the door was the blood of Torah. Yes, you heard me right. The blood of Torah. That exists in the Midrash Shabbat. We're going to find it with God's help. But I just had to, I just had to tell you that because, you know, um, it's just amazing. Uh, by the way, the Torah does bleed. In case you're wondering, you're wondering, what's going on? What am I listening to? No, no, it says in the Midrash, it also talks about, I believe in Josephus' writings, that when the, the, the Roman king went into, uh, not the king, but the general, went in and defiled the temple in the second temple period, he took out a sword and started cutting up the Torah scrolls because he just wanted to destroy them, and uh, they started to bleed. So it said in verse 11, uh, there's a comment to the verse 11. Verse 11, let's read verse 11. So shall you eat it, your loins gird, your shoot on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is a Pesach offering to Hashem. So the question becomes, why do we have to eat it this way? By the way, we don't eat the present, we don't uh, do this, pardon me, at our present Pesach seders. We only did this at the first Pesach, but we didn't leave at night. 
Isn't that interesting? Hashem wants us to have our loins girded, our shoes on our feet, staff in our hand, but we didn't leave until the next morning. So what, so what was the deal uh, acting as if we were going to uh, have to flee as soon as we, uh, you know, as soon as we said the Birkat HaMazon, we have to rush out the door. What's going on? So the uh, art school says, uh, those who ate the Pesach offering had to gird their loins, etc., to have their belts tightened and dressed and ready to go. But actually, Moses would refuse Pharaoh's demand to leave during the night, and he would wait until morning. So why was the need to eat the offering in such a manner? He says, at the moment of redemption, the nation was still not deserving of such miracles. We don't deserve God's miracles. We don't deserve God's Yeshua. We don't deserve anything. And so if we ever find ourselves thinking, well, God has to say, he has to save us because we're Jews. No, that's not what it says here. So it says here, at, um, la, da, 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 da. indeed, the sages put it, they, they hovered just above the lowest depth of spiritual contamination. And if they had not been redeemed at that time, it would have been too late, like we just said. So, the article Chumash says, This was symbolized by the manner in which they were to eat the offering. It was to bring their consciousness, uh, to their consciousness, that they were being redeemed only by God's mercy. So that entire mitzvah of eating the Pesach lamb in that way was to send a message to the consciousness maybe even the subconsciousness of the individual that, listen, this is all being done despite you, in spite of you, right? All of this is being done by God's grace and God's mercy. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it. Uh, now, continuing on, it says, I shall go through the land of Egypt on that night and shall strike every firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim from man to beast and against all the gods of Egypt shall I mete out punishment and I am Hashem. The blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are and I shall see the blood and I shall pass over you and there shall be a, not be a plague of destruction upon you when, you, when, when I strike the land of Mitzrayim. So I love this insight from uh, the art school Humash. Because there are some uh, who would say, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, rightfully so, perhaps, they would say, well, anybody who was in the house that had the blood on the door, anybody that was in the house that had the blood on the door, well, you would be saved. Everything's fine. That's not exactly true. In fact, um, there's a scene in the movie uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, which is, by the way, a good movie. Well, there's a scene in the movie, The Ten Commandments, where Joshua, he's got his uh, the woman that he loves, I forget her name, and uh, she has been taken captive, so to speak, by an evil, wicked Jew named Dothan. And so Joshua goes and puts the blood on the door of Dothan's house because he wants to save the life of the girl because she's a firstborn. And uh, next day, the soldiers come and get Dothan and the, and the lady, and tell him to get out. And Dothan doesn't want to leave because he wants to be an Egyptian. And he realizes that Joshua put the blood on the door and he's mad. But in actuality, had that actually happened, Dothan would still be dead. Why? Because it says here, 
The Jewish firstborn were saved from the plague because the blood signified that those inside the house had involved themselves in doing God's will, a.k.a. Torah. The blood is a symbol of obedience. You can't have the blood on the doorpost and say, hey, I've got the blood, I'm not. I'm disobedient, but hey, I've got the blood, it's no problem. That's not what doesn't work that way. The blood was a symbol that we were committed to the covenant. If you're not committed to the covenant, then the blood doesn't do you any good. And we're going to learn from Messiah's own mouth in a second that that's a reality. So it says here, it was this devotion to the commandments, not the mere presence in a, quote, safe house, that protected the Jews. Therefore, Rashi notes an old Egyptian firstborn, or excuse me, Rashi notes an Egyptian firstborn who took refuge in a Jewish house would not survive. So if a Jewish firstborn was running through the streets and ran into a Jewish home and slammed the door behind them and said, oh, thank God, I, I just, you know, I have no interest in Torah. I have no interest in living like a Jew. I have no interest in conversion. I have no interest in living for the God of Israel. I just want to live by the blood. Guess what? He'd die. He'd die. Because God's not stupid. He knows who belongs to him. The sheep will hear his voice. He knows who's in his flock. This is why the Messiah taught a parable and said about the man who came into the wedding feast, but he wasn't properly dressed. He said, how did you get in here without the proper clothing? Oh, you thought just coming to the feast, you thought the blood on the door would save you, but no, you don't have the right clothes on. And what are the right clothes? The Midrash Shabbat tells us that the clothes here are re reference to seat, uh, seat, seat, feeling. Those are the clothes. So it says it was not the blood that prevented the plague, nor its absence that caused it. The Torah teaches that whoever unequivocally places trust in Hashem and did not fear Pharaoh or his decrees, but fearlessly slaughtered Egypt's God in public and placed the Pesach offering blood on the doorpost, thereby demonstrating that he was righteous and worthy of being protected by the plague. This has come from Rabbi Bachya. Now, so it wasn't the blood. But you can say, wait a minute, I thought we're saved by the blood. Yeah, that's only if we're in covenant. This is what it means when it says the just shall live by faith. See, people say, see, this is the problem with the Greek mind. We either have to have the spirit or we have to have the law, but we can't have both. That's ridiculous. It's completely unbiblical. So the just shall live by faith, yes. And you have to put the blood on the door. See, that's the physical mitzvah. The spiritual mitzvah is to believe. The spiritual mitzvah is to do. But you can't just have the blood without being committed to the covenant. I'm sorry. And, and by the way, you, uh, people are going to be mad at me about saying this, but Yeshua said it. He said it in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. He says, listen, you call me Lord, Lord. You're doing all kinds of wonderful things in my name. You're having big tent revivals. People are getting healed, delivered. Uh, you're giving lots of sadaka. You're preaching all kinds of great messages. This is wonderful. But here's the problem. You are devoid of the Mosaic law. That's what anomia means. When it says workers of iniquity in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, it literally means devoid of the Mosaic law. It says, therefore, I don't know you. And the word know is a word that indicates an intimate knowing, an intimate relationship, like a man knows, knows his wife. And so the deal is, is if you're not following my covenant, then we don't have a relationship. What's a marriage without a ketubah? It's called living together. It's no covenant at all. So... Um, 
we had we had become so low we needed the blood but the blood only helped us if we were actually uh we actually believe what we were doing if we don't believe it and more than just believe and believe is doing god is is into verbs not nouns right so it says here um moving on uh, verse 14, this day shall become a remembrance for you and, and you shall celebrate it as a festival for Hashem, for your descendants and at eternal degree shall you celebrate it. Okay, before we go too far, just remember. All right, let's go back over here. Rebbeinu Bakya, and we're going to pull out uh, Ramban uh, because for the last two days I've been trying to get to this point. Okay. All right, so let's see here. Now, uh, going back to verse 12, there is a statement that says, I shall, I shall go to the land of Egypt on this night, and I shall strike, strike every firstborn in the land of Egypt from man to beast, and against all the gods of Egypt shall I mete out punishment. I am Adonai. What is most unique about this particular... Um, verse, this particular plague, is that Hashem did it all by himself. He did not employ an agent. He did it spiritually. Now, there's a great mystery here in about, about what I'm about to say, because Yeshua is Hashem manifest. And there's a reason why he had to be manifest in a physical form, because he had to carry out a physical task. In this case, Hashem was not necessarily manifest in a physical form, but so he therefore, uh, actually, Rabbi Nubakia says that he he affected, as it were, this plague through the aspect uh, of himself, which is known as the Shekinah, the glory of God, the Ruach HaKodesh. But let's begin here. Rabbi Nubakia says, and against all the deities of Egypt, I will carry out judgments. So it says here, and God employs the pronoun I to emphasize that he would not employ any delegate such as the angel Memtet, who normally is in charge of matters pertaining to the terrestrial part of the universe. The meaning of the word Memtet is translated as Moray Derek. Moray Derek. That's what Memtet essentially means. Now, what does Moray Derek mean? Okay. Because it is our contention in a very in a very mystical way that Yeshua is ultimately Memtet. And uh, there's a lot about Memtet, but that's Yeshua's ultimately Memtet. And Memtet, the meaning of Memtet ultimately is Moray Derek. What does Moray Derek mean? It means literally the teacher of the way. That's what it means right here. Literally. Okay? Now. As an aside, when we're talking about the 600,000 Jews who came out of Mitzrayim in, in verse 37, Rabbeinu Bakya points out that the wording in Hebrew indicates that there was 600,000 less one. And so, in order for there to be exactly 600,000, why does there need to be exactly 600,000? Very good question. I'm glad you asked. It's because there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. And therefore, you need a Jewish soul for every letter. <sighs> what about... Oh, this is so good. So it says here... So you're missing one. That's a problem. 
right? But Rabbi Nubakia says, he, he read in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer in chapter 39, according to the wording there, when God realized that they were one short, one man short, one man short of 600,000, God himself took that place and became the final man. Oh, became the final man, the missing man, to bring the required quorum. And in thus fashion, God fulfilled what he said in Yaakov, Genesis 46.4, I am going to bring you up out of there. He did it all by himself. Now, Ramban, let's go to Ramban talking about Memtet. Ramban's comment to uh, Shemot 12.12, <clears throat> it says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I shall mete out punishment. God himself, and not through the emissary, this is generally uh, sent... Excuse me, I'm sorry, let's sleek up. God himself, and not through the emissary that is generally sent from him, may he be blessed, to oversee all the divine actions that are performed on earth. What's he talking about? Well, if we go to the Talmud, to Sanhedrin 94a, and also to Yevamot 16b, we learn in those Talmudic uh, portions that there is a quote-unquote angel who God has given complete authority over everything that is terrestrial. It refers here, the angel who is over the, the whole world, but since terrestrial means creation, then we have to assume that it's not just the world as in planet Earth, which is round, by the way, um, but the entire universe. So there is an angel... Uh, that is, God has put everything into his hands. That is literally what it says in the Talmud and Rashi comments on that. So here we say that normally God would have given this task to this angel and we're going to learn who Ramban, we, we learned who Rabbeinu Bakya said the angel was and this is who Ramban says the angel is. <clears throat> he says, and that is the great angel who is called Memtet. Now, Memtet is an uh, abbreviation of his name. We don't say his name. Why? This is very interesting. Because the sages say that his name is so holy, it's like the name of the Most High God. And so, therefore, just like we do not pronounce the divine name, we do not pronounce this angel's name either. Instead, we say Memtet in order to give it reverence like unto the holy name because he is like unto God. So it says here, and this is the great angel who is called Memtet because of this function, for the meaning of the word Memtet is one who shows the way. As they said in Sifre, the finger of the Holy One, blesses he, became a, a Metatron for Moses and showed him all the land of Egypt. This is in Sifre Hazinu 338. And in the Midrash called Yelamedenu, they state, Balak heard that Balaam had come, Numbers 22:36. This teaches that they had sent a Metatron before him to precede his arrival. Midrash, Lelamedu, cited by Aruch. Okay? So it says, And also, there the sages taught, See, I have begun to deliver before you Sikon and his land, Devarim 2:31. God was in effect telling Moses, if you are worried about the impending battles, fear not, for I shall be your Memtet, and you will go before me. That's what it says right here in Ramban. 
If you have Ramban, I'm on page 231. And this is the, uh, by the way, this is the Shemot volume one. And do not be surprised by these events, Ramban writes, for in the future I shall become a, a, a metator, which is the root word of that name, even before an uncircumcised man, even before Cyrus. As it states, thus says Adonai to his appointed one to Cyrus, I shall go before you. Isaiah 45, 1, 2. So the root of Memtet is one who goes before. For what purpose? To show the way. To lead the way. You know, like I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, that kind of thing. So it says here, uh, yes. And also in the future, I am to proceed before a woman, before Devorah and Barak, as it is stated in Judge 4, 14. Behold, Adonai has gone before you. Midrash, Yelamedenu, cited again by Aruch. Also, so we find a memtet used in this sense in many places. Indeed, I have heard that the very word emissary in Greek language is metator, which is the root of the name memtet. So, we find here that this uh, great angel, this mystical angel, that um, is the one um, that is uh, normally the one that, that brings people out of uh, Mitzrayim, is uh, Memtet, who happens to be the angel who shows people the way. That's not all, by the way. There's a whole lot more to that uh, in terms of um, the character of Memtet. But I want to get to one more thing before we have to close out our time together. Um, and again, uh, there's just so much here. There's no way, as I said earlier in the week, there's just no way we could get uh, get to all of it. Um, but I want to cover this one last thing. So if we go fast forward to Shemot chapter 12... And verse 38. This is now part of what? This is part of the sixth Aliyah. So in a way, hey, we made it to the sixth Aliyah, Mazel Tov. So it says, Also a mixed multitude went up with them and uh, and flock and cattle, very much livestock. Now, uh, Rabbi Monk talks about this mixed multitude. And so this is just so beautiful. Um. It says a mixed multitude, they game Erevrav. This was a, a mixture from other peoples who had converted. Say converted. These are not Gentiles. People say, well, uh, Gentiles also went up with them. No, they didn't. Uh, converts. Why? Because these are all Egyptians and other nationalities. So, <clears throat> a mixed multitude. Okay, so it says here. Uh, there was a mixture of people who, who converted. They were not Gentiles. They were non, oh, excuse me, they were converts. Why? Because they would have had to have uh, circumcised themselves in order to partake of the Pesach lamb in order to qualify for the redemption. So they're converts that came out. But here's what I want to get to, and we're going we're gonna to end it here. Targum Yonatan adopted Rabbi Akiva's opinion in the Makilta which indicates that there were 240 myriads of these converts who came out of Mitzrayim. And by the way, how did they come? 
Did they just on their own come to the conclusion? Some of them may have, but according to uh, to the Zohar and according to uh, the Mekilta and according to Rabbi Monk, Moses was zealous to find souls. And so in addition to everything else that was going on, he found time to go around and proselytize. And let's take a look right here at how successful were his efforts. Well, when it talks about a myriad, my friends, that is 10,000. So if there were 240 myriads, that means that there were 2.4 million converts that came out of Mitzrayim with the 600,000 600, uh, Hebrews, Jews. Why were there 2.4 million? That just so happens to be the exact number that perished, the Jewish people that perished during the plague of darkness because they refused to believe. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you for joining us. Have a very, very happy, 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 happy prep day. Be joyful. Uh, be kind to people. And I want to see everybody in shul tomorrow. Everybody in shul, online or in person, I want you to be there. And if uh, also, please, I should say, share this video, like this video, post it everywhere. Do your friends and family a favor because I need to hear this message. Shalom, shalom, and blessings.